We all love a good story, don't we? You know one with lots and twists and turns, some unexpected things that we never saw coming. One of my favorites was written by the famous wordsmith H.G. Wells. You know, he was famous for his work, The Time Machine, and then A War of the Worlds. But there was a lesser known short story that he wrote that's one of my favorites. It was titled A Country of the Blind. In this story, Wells describes this luxurious, inaccessible village. It's hidden away in Ecuador and between the Ecuadorian Alps. It's, it's a beautiful place. But there's just one thing. You understand there was a disease that took place in the village and everyone became affected. And so now everyone has been born blind. It really was a country of the blind. And it was a village without any sight, without any color, without any news of a world beyond their own. But in this village, they had everything they wanted. All their needs were met. In this fertile, hidden valley, they were satisfied. They had everything. They had everything but sight. Then one day, a young explorer named Nunez, he's up in the Alps, he's hiking around, and then he slips off a cliff, and he slides down the cliff, down the mountain, into the foliage of this hidden, fertile valley. Well, soon he begins to encounter the people, and he realizes that everyone he meets is born blind. Well, Nunez, he begins to tell stories of a world beyond their own. He describes in brilliant color and the brilliant creation, the beauty of it all. And the people, they sit and they listen to the tales of Nunez. But soon their faces turn sour and sad. They chose not to believe anything that Nunez was telling them. They believed that Nunez must have been insane to think of such things, and they thought that his insanity came from his sight. Well, Nunez thought about leaving, but there was this old English proverb that in a country of the blind, a man with one eye is king. So Nunez, he decides to stay and work and build a life for himself, and he meets a girl. He falls in love. He wants to get married. Her dad, he was connected, and so he goes to the village leaders, and he just asks them what they think. And finally, the doctor speaks up, and the doctor says, the only way this thing is going to work is if we can cure him of his insanity. And if we want to cure him of his insanity, the only treatment plan is to remove his eyes. Well, the father asks, are you, are you sure that then he will be perfectly sane? The doctor responds, oh, I'm quite sure he will be perfectly sane. After we remove his eyes, he will be an admirable citizen. So the father goes back to Nunez and tells the young man, hey, the only way that you can marry my daughter is if you undergo this operation to remove your eyes. Well, Nunez, he goes away to think about it. And then Wells writes this. He said he had fully meant to go to some lonely place where the meadows were beautiful with flowers and there remain until the hour of his sacrifice. But as he walked and looked around him and saw the beauty of creation, he saw the sun rising in the morning like an angel in golden armor, the sunlit shone on the valley. He realized then and there that this valley was nothing more than a trap of ignorance and futility. And he escaped with his life from this country, from this country of the blind. You know, this short story, it's full of all kinds of twists and turns that you just don't really see coming. 
The third message of Haggai is a lot like that. It takes a twist that no one would anticipate. And so this morning, as we continue our series through the book of Haggai, you'll remember that Haggai is writing, he's speaking to the to this people who have just come from exile. They've just come from quarantine. And in his first message, Haggai tells the people, you must display the presence of God. And in the second message, he tells of people who have become discouraged. They're building the temple, but they've become discouraged. And he tells them, despite your encouragement, keep at it, keep working, keep displaying the presence of God, because God is with you. And the people respond. And now comes Haggai's third message. And it is a message that no one would see coming. It takes a twist that no one would anticipate. I want you to hear the prophet's words. Haggai chapter 2 verses 10 through 19. The prophet writes, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a defiled person by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Now, Give careful thought to this. From this day on, consider how these things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, Give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. Just like the gap between his first and second message, so again, the prophet waits two months before delivering this third message. But unlike the first and second message, when Haggai first spoke to Zerubbabel, the governor, the political leader, and then to Joshua, the high priest, the religious leader, and then to the people, well, in this one, Haggai, he doesn't talk to Zerubbabel. He doesn't talk to Joshua. He just goes straight to the people. And this message, it takes an unexpected turn. There's a twist here that no one would see coming. See, you need to understand that in the Old Testament, when the prophets would speak, the people largely just ignored their warnings. Their messages went unheeded. But with Haggai, it was different. When Haggai spoke up the first time and he says, why are you so concerned building your own homes when you need to get to work on the temple of God? Well, the people listen, they get to work, they begin building the temple so they can display the presence of God. 
But then as they remember Solomon's temple and they're comparing it to this temple that they're building, well, they get discouraged. And so the prophet speaks again and he says, even in your discouragement, keep at it, keep working, keep building the temple, keep displaying the presence of God. And again, the people listen, they continue to work, they continue to fulfill the task. And so then this message comes, a message that is just unexpected because the people appear to be faithful. And the message is this, the prophet begins and he says, there's two questions that you need to go and you need to get a ruling on from the priests. And the first question is this, is holiness contagious? Can you become holy simply by touching something that is holy? And the second question is this, is uncleanness contagious? Can you become defiled just by touching something that is defiled? Now, in order to be able to grasp this section and really understand what the prophet wants the people to get, you need to understand that the chief concept here is holiness. And the overarching characteristic of God is his holiness. He is the God who is holy, and so he wants a people who is holy. Now, to be holy, that means to be set apart, that you are set apart, special, unique, for the purpose of work for God and worship for God. This is what holiness means. When you go through and you explore this concept in the Old Testament, you see that there are different things that are holy. That Sabbath day was set apart as holy, a special day of rest for God. Then there's uh, fasting, and these periods of fasting were was holy, elements of the sacrifice, the meat that is referenced in this question, it was set apart as holy. Even war in Joel, war is set apart as holy, some wars. But most frequently, it is his people, it is God's people who are set apart as holy for the work and worship of God. And to be defiled, well, that means that you are unfit for the work and worship of of God. And in order for someone who is defiled, in order for someone who is unclean, then to be made holy, again fit for the work and worship of God, well, there was this prescribed treatment plan that you had to go through in order to be restored to holiness or in order to be made holy. And so there were certain ceremonial washings that you had to do, there were certain sacrifices that needed to be made, there was a certain period of waiting that had to take place. And it all depended upon what your sin was or what you touched, what level of uncleanness, defilement that you had in order to be restored to fellowship, restored to holiness. However, if someone who is knowingly defiled, someone who is knowingly unclean were to go to the temple in order to worship, well, that person would be destroyed because it would be a sign of outright disobedience, outright rebellion, outright blasphemy, and that would not be tolerated. Because this was serious business. This concerned the very character, the very nature of God, his holiness, his justice. And it also concerned the obedience and the faithfulness and the respect of the people. And so here's the point that every Israelite knew. Everyone knew this. This was not a question. And that is, it's a whole lot easier to become unclean than it is 
to become holy. See, in the example that Haggai gives, the question is, if I touch something holy, do I then become holy? And the priests answer, no. But what if I am unclean? And I touch something that is holy. Does that holy thing then become unclean because I touch it? And the priests answer, yes. You see, it is a whole lot easier to become unclean than it is to become clean. It's a whole lot easier to be defiled than it is to become holy. And we see this law at work all the time, right? You can have somebody who you trust... But then if they lie to you, just one lie, what happens? Well, trust is broken. They have defiled the relationship and it's a little bit difficult to restore it, to get back to that same level of trust. We see it right now with this virus, right? I mean, somebody has a virus and you're not just saying, hey, come hang out with all of us healthy people and maybe you'll get well. No, what do we say? We say, no, you need to, you need to be quarantined off here for a couple weeks. You need to go through a, a treatment plan. And that's what happens with any kind of disease, with any kind of cancer, with any kind of virus. There's a prescribed plan that needs to take place in order for you to be healthy again. It could be a certain time away, a time of rest. It could be some antibiotics, some chemotherapy, some radiation. Depending upon what sickness, what illness you have, well then a prescribed treatment plan is given. But it's a whole lot easier to become unclean than it is to become clean. And we know this. The people of Haggai's day, they knew this. But the people of Haggai's day, they made this miscalculation. They believed that since they were involved in this holy work, doing these holy things, rebuilding the temple, that for those reasons, that then they would be holy. So Haggai speaks up and he gives them this example. It's an example that they probably all considered before. You know, they're supposed to go to the priest, but this one's a no-brainer for the priest. The priests don't have to sit around and debate this. Everybody knew this. Everybody knows that you don't become holy simply by touching something that is holy. And everybody also knows that, yeah, if you touch something that's unclean, well, then you become defiled. Everybody knew that in theory. But see, in the moment, when the moment happens and you're at work and you're doing this, you, you know, the, the Israelites, they were living in the country of the blind. They were blind to the fact that just because they were doing something holy, that that didn't mean that they were holy. Even though this temple was to be set apart for God as holy, it doesn't mean they were holy. Even worse, they were blind to the fact that because they were defiled, that all of their work, it meant nothing. It added up to nothing. Did you hear the words of God through the prophet Haggai? He said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. See, God speaks to this people. He uses pejoratives. He's speaking to them as if they were this nation, this pagan nation. It's the same terms that he would use to describe a Gentile pagan nation. And he says, whatever their works, whatever their sacrifices, it's all defiled. It's unclean. It's not worthy of the work and worship of God because these people aren't fit for the work and worship of God. And they're blind to all of it. They're believing this lie. I mean, you read the words of this prophet 
And you don't expect it to turn this way. You don't expect it to go this way. Even more, the people of that day, they didn't see it coming either. They thought they were good. They, they, they believed that since they were doing this good thing, that they were good. And just like the people of Israel, oh, we can have the same issue, can't we? We can believe all kinds of things because we too are living in the country of the blind. You know, sometimes we can just show up to the church building and we can think, well, you know, I had this sin in my past. I've done this. I've made this mistakes. And if I simply come, well, this is good. This is a holy place. This is a good place. And if I come, well, this is some kind of penance. And God will shine favorably on me again. I'm kind of making up for stuff simply by being here. We can, we can believe that we earn favor with God simply by discipling others, or by sharing Jesus, by impacting people, by volunteering in some kind of ministry or some kind of soup kitchen or something like that. But the words of the prophet tell us, and we know, that these works, these things, they're not what make you holy. These things don't make you better. God doesn't just look on you and love you more because you do this stuff. See, we can be blind to so much. This blind thinking is pervasive in our country because we too live in a country of the blind. Now, I did a funeral this week of a godly lady and a lady who's really known by her love for others. And as Christians, that's what we're supposed to be known by, right? Is our love for one another. And as I was preparing just for her funeral, I was reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great passage, that great chapter on love that Paul wrote. And he began that chapter and he, and he goes through these seven magnificent characteristics. Seven characteristics that if you look at, you said, yes, I would want that to be true of me. And if that's true of anybody, well, then wow, they live some kind of significant, some kind of meaningful life. Paul, he goes through, he says, you can speak in the tongues of men. You can travel, you can be this world-class missionary who shows up in any country of the world and immediately you're fluent in their language. You can even say the words of scripture. And he says you could speak in the tongue of angels. You could be able to converse with the angels in this heavenly tongue. And then he goes on. He says you could have all the knowledge there is in all the world. You could be able to answer the mysteries to whatever questions may be out there. You're a walking, talking encyclopedia. You know it all. And then he says you could have a faith that can move mountains. You can have this incredible faith, all this faith, believing that God can do whatever. And he goes further. He says, you could give all that you have to the poor. Everything you own. You make yourself bankrupt on behalf of others. And you even show up at the soup kitchen. And you take the spoon and you feed it into their mouths. And then Paul goes further. He says, you could die your body in the flames on behalf of someone else. You could be a martyr for someone else. And he says, you could do all that. But if you do it all without love, it means nothing because you've forgotten the most critical aspect of the whole deal. It's love. It's built on this loving relationship with God and with others. That somehow, if you have all these magnificent qualities, absence of love, absent of love, it adds up to nothing. Paul says you are a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. It profits you nothing. And he says you are nothing. So you understand the first message of Haggai was to display 
the presence of God. As you're coming out of exile, as you're coming out of quarantine, you display the presence of God. The second message of Haggai is even when you're discouraged, even when you think all my efforts, they're not adding up, they're not making any kind of a difference. It is keep at it, keep displaying the presence of God because God is with you. And this third message of Haggai, this twist that no one saw coming, it's don't get this confused. Don't think that your good works make you holy. In fact, if, you're, if you are defiled, everything you do that you think is good, well, you corrupt all of it. You must check the motivation of your heart. What motivates all of this? Is it motivated out of a relationship with God because you love him and you're privileged to be used by him? Or is it motivated to try to earn favor or try to be seen as good in the eyes of others? What is the motivating factor of your heart? See, holiness is a big deal to God. It is his overarching characteristic that he is holy. He is a God who is unique, who is set apart, who is seen as significant. And he desires a people who are holy, who are set apart for the work and worship of him. The people in Haggai's day, they thought about holiness a lot. We don't tend to think about it a whole lot, even though Jesus gave us the command, be holy as I am holy. So the question does come, well, how then can I be holy if it's not what I do, if it's not the work of my hands, if it's not being involved in good things, in holy things, what can I do? Because see, living in this country of the blind, like the Israelites, we can believe that when we're a part of holy things, when we're a part of good things, things that seem meaningful to us, coming to a church building, taking part in a Bible study, doing some kind of holy work, like sharing the gospel or trying to disciple people or volunteering, that these things make us holy. But the prophet says, no, your defilement, if you are defiled, it corrupts all of it. See, the reality is there is nothing you can do, nothing you can touch, nothing you can be involved in that will make you holy. It's not about touching holy things. It's not about being involved in holy things. It's not about doing holy things. No, the only way you can be free of your defilement is by being transformed by the one holy God. He's the only one who can make you holy. Only through a relationship with Jesus Christ can your defilement be paid for. Can you rid yourself of this corruptness and instead have the righteousness of a holy God? It's the only way. It is through relationship. But when it comes right down to it, we're all defiled by sin. See, we all need this touch from God, this relationship with God, because we've all been corrupted. And so therefore, everything we touch apart from God, we corrupt. It is only when the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ, comes into our life that we become holy, that we are now set apart, worthy of the work and worship of our Holy God. And then the motivation changes. The, the motivation of your heart changes. You're no longer motivated to gather for worship just because you think it'll earn you some favor. You're not motivated to gather because of tradition or because of habit or for any other reason than simply you long to worship God with the family of God. It is the motivation of your heart. 
you know, the motivation for sharing Jesus and impacting people, well, that changes too. It's not about, oh, this is my duty, this is my obligation, this is what I ought to do. It is simply, oh, I love God and he's given me this privilege to, to use me for the advancement of his kingdom. I mean, how, how amazing and incredible is that? The God of the universe would love you so much that he doesn't hold you as a bystander, but he says, I want to use you. And you say, out of this loving relationship with God, then what do you do? You just show up. Wherever it is, you live, work, and play, and you display the presence of God. You let people know of this Holy One of God, Jesus Christ. See, your eyes will be opened even as you're living in this country of the blind. You begin to rearrange your life, reprioritize things, reschedule things so that you are displaying His presence. And God desperately wanted His people to see he desperately wanted their eyes to be open. And so he tells them this. He, he tells them a couple of times, think about this. Give careful attention to this. Pay attention to what I'm saying. And he says, look, did, did you see what you were doing? You thought that you were going and you were going to get this amount. But you never got that amount, did you? He says, I, I was working against you the whole time, trying to open your eyes, trying to help you see. Why? Because he wants the relationship. He wants them to depend on him, not to depend on their work, not to depend on what they're involved in, but simply to depend on him. He wanted the beauty of this relationship. Maybe you feel like the Israelites, like you've just been spinning your wheels, trying to gain, gain some sort of traction but you just can't seem to find it. You work so hard and you look back over the course of your life and you would think, well, I think I would have more to show for it than this. All my work, all my effort, it hadn't really amounted to all that much. And you've worked hard, you've gotten involved in good things and things that seem noble and you look and you say, well, there's still this emptiness inside. Any kind of satisfaction, it was just fleeting. It was here one day, it was gone the next. I still don't have this fullness, this satisfaction that I thought I'd have. And so you come to a building, you get, you get involved in a program, you start doing something and you think that that's going to bring the fullness. You, you think that that's going to make you holy. But see, we're living in the country of the blind. Things you touch, things you do, they don't make you holy. What makes you holy, what God really wants, he wants you. Because see, God can reach into all your defilement, into all your corruption, and he can make you clean. See, if any of us were to try to do that, well, we can't do it because we have this sin problem. We can't cleanse ourselves. We corrupt everything we touch apart from God. It is only the Holy One of Jesus Christ who can make us right, who can give us his righteousness. Why? Because he died for all that corruption. He paid the price, the, the prescription plan to rid people of their defilement. Well, it required a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitute. And that was Jesus. It also required a perfect life. And that was Jesus. He lived a perfect life and he died a death and he rose again for us so that we can have that right relationship with God so that we can be restored. You see, God wants the relationship. And then out of that relationship, well, then all of that work flows. It's not you do the work in hopes of earning a relationship. It's the relationship happens. So now I'm motivated to do the work. 
You know, this sermon of Haggai, it concludes again on a surprising note. It takes another twist right at the end. And it's an optimistic note. It's a note of promise because the prophet sees in these people, a people who are listening, a people who are repentant. He sees the prospect of just genuine following, a genuine relationship. He believes that they're going to listen. And so what does he say? The Lord is going to bless you. The Lord is going to be with you. He's going to bless you. And so he ends on this encouraging note because he believes that the people are now going to focus on the relationship and not simply the work. You know, as you live a life motivated by a love for God and others, the lights come on. Yeah, you're living in the country of the blind, but all of a sudden you can see when other people can't. You know, the main difference between us and Nunez in that story in the country of the blind, Nunez escapes the country of the blind with his life. But it's not so with us. See, with us, as we live in the country of the blind, we actually give our lives for the people living in darkness. See, that that's our job, is motivated out of this relationship with God. We now love others. We take the gospel into the defiled places, into the corrupt places of our world. And we bring the Holy One of God who is able to touch and make things clean, make things right. See, we really are living in a country of the blind, but we really are headed to a country of perfect sight, of perfect beauty, of endless wonder and worship of our King. So in the meantime, don't stop displaying God's presence. Keep inviting, keep loving, keep sharing, keep impacting, keep shining. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us and that you choose to use us. So God, help us not to be blinded by our work or by our deeds or by showing up. But God, help us to focus on the relationship because it is out of the fullness of a relationship that you use us. It is a relationship with you that makes us holy. So God, help us to introduce others to this holy one of yours, Jesus Christ. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son we love. Jesus Christ. Amen.